1962, the San Francisco Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers staged their first great pennant race since moving to California in 1958. The teams were dead even after 162 games. As in 1951, the Dodgers were on the verge of a playoff victory when the Giants rallied to a third game triumph and the National League pennant on October 3, 1962. Six months earlier, on Monday, April 9, the traditional National League opening game was played at Crosley Field in Cincinnati as the Philadelphia Phillies beat the Reds 12-4. And four days later, on Friday, April 13, the new film Experiment in Terror, directed by Blake Edwards, opened in New York City at the Criterion Theater at 1514 Broadway in Times Square. Where Have You Gone, Blake Edwards? Welcome to Where Have You Gone? People, places, and things that are gone but not forgotten, forgotten but not gone, and the people and places saving these stories for your enjoyment and benefit today. I'm Morris Eckhouse. Blake Edwards was born on July 26, 1922. He died on December 15, 2010. In 1963, he co-wrote and directed The Pink Panther, starring David Niven as Sir Charles Lytton and Peter Sellers as Inspector Jacques Clouseau. The follow-up film, A Shot in the Dark, was written by Edwards and William Peter Blatty, based on the stage play written by Harry Kurnitz. The Clouseau character was not in the play, but he was the star of the film. For many people, Blake Edwards will be best known for the films he made with Peter Sellers, including the Pink Panther films and The Party, but they're only part of the Blake Edwards story. Early in his career during the 1940s, Blake Edwards was an actor, often uncredited. You might spot him in The Best Days of Our Lives, 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, or A Guy Named Joe. As much as Edwards is associated with Peter Sellers, he had an even greater collaboration with Henry Mancini. Starting with High Time in 1960, Mancini contributed his musical talents to 27 of the feature films directed by Blake Edwards. The collaborations resulted in Oscars for Mancini for the music in Breakfast at Tiffany's from 1961 and Victor Victoria from 1983. Edward's most important collaboration was with his second wife, Julie Andrews. They were married from 1969 until his death in 2010. They made seven films together from 1970's Darling Lily to That's Life from 1986, along with The Tamarind Seed, Ten, S.O.B., Victor Victoria, and The Man Who Loved Women. Edwards is probably best known as a director of comedies, such as the Pink Panther films. But his filmography includes several outstanding dramas and thrillers, including Experiment in Terror, Days of Wine and Roses, and The Carey Treatment. Edwards is the subject of the book A Splurge in the Kisser by Sam Wasson. Wasson also wrote the book Fifth Avenue, 5 a.m., about the making of the film Breakfast at Tiffany's. In 1993, Edwards received the Preston Sturgis Award, given jointly by the Writers Guild of America West and the Directors Guild of America, 
and given previously only to Richard Brooks and Billy Wilder. In his early career, from the late 1940s to the early 1950s, Edwards wrote radio scripts for Richard Diamond, Private Detective, The Lineup, Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, and Suspense. He created the Richard Diamond character for radio and Peter Gunn for television. And that's where I'll pick up the story when I continue with Where Have You Gone, Blake Edwards. We hope you are enjoying this episode of Where Have You Gone? For more information about the show, its topics, and its guests, check out our website at whygpodcast.com. There you can also find recommendations for fascinating books, films, TV shows, and recordings to learn even more about our topics, guests, and ideas. You can also find us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone hyphen podcast and on Twitter at WHYG podcast. And now back to the episode. Blake Edwards created the groundbreaking detective shows Richard Diamond and Peter Gunn. Diamond started on radio in 1949 to 1953 and moved to television from 1957 to 1960. Gunn was made expressly for television, 1958 to 1961. Edwards made a feature film version titled Gunn in 1967 and remade it for television in 1989 as Peter Gunn. Diamond and Gunn are two of the great creations in the genre of detective fiction. Besides Diamond and Gun, Edwards was also the creator of the 1959-1960 series Mr. Lucky, starring John Vivian and Ross Martin. By the time Diamond, Gun, and Lucky reached television, Edwards' reputation as a film director was growing from 1955 to 1960, thanks to films such as Operation Petticoat, starring Cary Grant and Tony Curtis, and High Time, starring Bing Crosby. He reached directorial stardom with Breakfast at Tiffany's, earning a Directors Guild of America nomination for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Motion Pictures. He followed that up with a thriller that might well have featured a Richard Diamond or a Peter Gunn. The film was Experiment in Terror, starring Glenn Ford as John Rip Ripley, and that film is the reason we're here. The screenplay was written by the Gordons, Gordon Gordon and Mildred Gordon, and based on their novel, Operation Terror. If the film had kept the ending of the book, it's unlikely I'd be talking about Blake Edwards. The climax of the book takes place during a National Football League night game between the Los Angeles Rams and the Baltimore Colts at the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. No specific players are mentioned. The film takes place in San Francisco rather than Los Angeles, at the new home of the relatively new San Francisco Giants. Candlestick Park opened in 1960. Because the film ends at Candlestick Park, 
during a night game between the Giants and the Los Angeles Dodgers, we get to see baseball stars Don Drysdale, John Roseboro, and Wally Moon of the Dodgers, and Harvey Keen, Jose Pagan, Mike McCormick, Ed Bailey, and Willie McCovey of the Giants, and we hear the legendary voice of the Los Angeles Dodgers, Vin Scully. That alone makes the film worth watching. Leonard Maltin's movie guide gives the film three stars and calls it taut, realistic, unsentimental, and suspenseful, with convincing performances by Lee Remick and Ross Martin, a great Henry Mancini score, and good use of San Francisco locations. After Experiment in Terror, Edwards' next film was also set in San Francisco, and also co-starred Lee Remick alongside Jack Lemmon, Days of Wine and Roses. Adapted from the 1958 teleplay, the film version showed that Edwards had the ability to tackle serious drama, this one specifically about alcoholism, and he was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Director. The back-to-back-to-back successes of Breakfast at Tiffany's, Experiment in Terror, and Days of Wine and Roses were a springboard to a new phase of his career. He likely would not have gotten there if not for Richard Quine. Richard Quine was a mentor to Blake Edwards during the 1950s when they wrote seven films together and partnered in television on The Mickey Rooney Show, 1954 to 1955, created by Quine and largely written by Edwards. Quine directed numerous Hollywood hits in the 1950s and 1960s, including several films with Kim Novak, How to Murder Your Wife, and Hotel. Later, he directed three episodes of Columbo. Wasson says that as a mentor, he was ideal, Quine being an ideal mentor to Blake Edwards. Wasson also writes that when Quine moved up from directing B pictures to A pictures, Edwards was perfectly positioned to fill his shoes. One of those A pictures was Sex and the Single Girl from 1964, starring Natalie Wood and Tony Curtis. The following year, Curtis, Wood, and Jack Lemmon starred in Blake Edwards' The Great Race. After a short break, I'll be joined by Maureen Lee Lenker and Oriana Nudo, hosts of the Hollywoodography podcast, to talk about The Great Race and more of the films of Blake Edwards. For more information about Where Have You Gone, this episode and other episodes in the series, visit our website, whygpodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Where Have You Gone, Blake Edwards. I'm pleased to be joined by the co-hosts of Hollywoodography, Maureen Lee Lenker and Oriana Nudo. Welcome, Maureen and Oriana. Thank you for having us. Well, I'm happy that we've been able to connect here at the intersection of our two podcasts and Natalie Wood, the subject of your first season of Hollywoodography and the 
film that she was in, directed by Blake Edwards, The Great Race. You have covered the whole career of Natalie Wood. And one of the things I found interesting when I started looking a little further into this is that even though there's a 16-year age difference between Blake Edwards and Natalie Wood, their careers started at roughly the same time in the 1940s. And so they had advanced to this point. And in particular with Blake Edwards, he was coming off uh, the first two Pink Panther movies, The Pink Panther and A Shot in the Dark. And before that, Breakfast at Tiffany's, Experiment in Terror, and Days of Wine and Roses. And in your podcast about the great race, you talk a little bit about Experiment in Terror and Days of Wine and Roses. I seem to recall that you both saw Experiment in Terror. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what you remember its effect being on you? Well, Oriana and I, we met at USC in film school, and one summer we just sat in on Professor Drew Crasper's film noir course. And so we would go once a week or twice a week uh, in the evenings to catch uh, usually a double feature of noir. And I remember <laughs> being absolutely terrified by that one. And then we like came out on campus and it was dark and it was the summer. So there was no one around. And we're like, this is really creepy. <laughs> and I remember that your, uh, <laughs> your mom came to pick you up and I lived nearby and I, you know, your mom had to give me a ride home because I really didn't want to walk home by myself after watching the movie. <laughs> Which was very understandable. Well, it certainly shows that he got the job done. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so much of that, I think, is in the casting in the film. You know, Lee Remick is always wonderful, as is Glenn Ford. And the name of the actor who plays the villain is escaping me, but I know he was a comedian and he was mostly known for his comedic work and then have him be this horrifying stalker who is incredibly creepy and what I loved so much about the movie, besides the fact that I am pretty positive it opens with Lee Remick driving into her garage and then he's just in the garage waiting for her. And there's this like eight minute close up. He tells her she's not allowed to call the police. And then he she goes over to the phone and he's still in the house. There are so many great pop out moments before pop out scares were a thing. There are no cheap scares or anything like she's in a restaurant and this old woman goes into the bathroom and then turns around and it's him. And he is just always there following her one step ahead of everyone. And I think that's something you really feel for Lee Remick in the movie. And I think that's something with Blake Edwards films, you always really care about the characters, regardless of, you know, if it's a comedy or a drama, you're really rooting for them and they're fully fleshed out and developed characters. Well, it's interesting that you call out that character because the actor, you know, that you'll know as soon as I mentioned his name is Ross Martin. And he got a special billing at the end of the film. He gets no mention until the very end. And the end credits read Red Lynch played by Ross Martin. Ross Martin was in, in a bunch of stuff, television, film. He was in The Great Race, mostly lighter stuff. He was in Mr. Lucky, which was a Blake Edwards production. Uh, he was the sidekick in the Wild Wild West TV show for many years. I, I, I want to come back to casting, but I think you hit it right on that the casting of that film was excellent. 
And one of the things that runs through the Blake Edwards films is seeing guys show up in in his films over and over, whether it's uh, Ross Martin or Richard Mulligan or Larry Storch, Peter Sellers, which is a little different story. But you also mentioned Days of Wine and Roses, and it seems like that struck a chord with uh, one or both of you. Yeah, Days of Wine and Roses is, it's about, you know, Jack Lemon and Lee Remick. They get married. She's not a drinker. He's into socially drinking. And then they just very slowly become alcoholics. You know, Jack Lemon said that one of his favorite scenes he ever did is a scene where he and Lee Remick are staying with her father and he has taken the key to the liquor cabinet and hidden it in this like garden, uh, not a garden, a like conservatory. And Jack Lemon, they end up getting their hands on a little bit of alcohol, even though they've been sober for a little bit. And then he goes to find the key in this greenhouse and he just goes manic and really upset and just starts smashing everything in sight. And I remember seeing this movie a good six or seven years ago. And again, it's not a, it's just a drama, but I was just absolutely horrified by watching Jack Lemon go through this. And again, going into casting, Blake Edwards was so great because Jack Lemon's an incredible dramatic actor, comedic actor. He can literally do anything, but he cast people, especially in films like this, that are so believable as just regular everyday people that you might know or you might meet. And same thing with Lee Remick. And the way that he can so deftly play with comedy and drama in the same films or just kind of focus on one is really, really impressive. I um, actually remember reading, um, I'm not sure if it was in Julie Andrews' memoirs, Blake Edwards was trying to stop drinking and he had a bit of a problem and that was why he decided to do Days of Wine and Roses so he could really work through his own demons on the big screen. Well, and Oriana, like you were saying, I think with these using people again, Jack Lemmon pops up again in The Great Race and it really shows how deft Edwards was with both comedy and drama in that he knew how to use Lemon in both settings. He could evoke this really incredible dramatic performance out of him and really tap into that sort of everyman quality that Lemon did so well. But then at the same time, he could turn that on his head and tap into the more outrageous qualities of Lemon's comedy and fire that up to the max in The Great Race because that might might be Jack Lemon's most eccentric performance ever. So <laughs> You've gotten us up to The Great Race, and uh, I've listened to every one of your uh, Hollywoodography episodes about Natalie Wood, and I think you laughed more in the episode about the great race than all the others put together. Now, she had not done a whole lot of comedies, and you make the point that uh, her her greatest success was in more dramatic roles. First of all, I want to urge everybody listening to listen to, you know, I hope they'll listen to all of Hollywoodography, but especially episode 30, where you talk about the great race. And so I don't want to rehash the whole episode here. But in a nutshell, can you talk about how Natalie Wood came to that project? And she's at the top of her game. Blake Edwards is at the top of his game. They've got a great cast. And yet it didn't quite seem to work out the way everybody had hoped it would work out. I believe that was another contract project for Natalie Wood while she was at Warner Brothers. And she was just 
kind of finishing out the end of her contract here. She had really finally come into her own at the end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, after getting into a legal dispute with Warner Brothers over the quality of the roles that she was getting and fighting them over her contract. As you said, she's at the top of her game, uh, and this is a huge role. It's the leading role in the film and really the only significant female role in the entire film, Um, and she's part of a trio or a quartet, really, with uh, Jack Lemmon, who is this sort of mustache-twirling villain, (laughs) and then... His sidekick, played by Peter Falk, who has sort of some sort of homoerotic tension going on with Jack Lemmon. And then on the other side of that, there's uh, Tony Curtis, who plays the great Leslie, who is sort of this white knight hero who literally wears all white the entire movie. And I love the sort of counterbalance she provides to both of them, where Tony Curtis is very much a traditional Tony Curtis performance where he is a hero, but he has that little bit of sarcasm that he often brought to his roles. And then Jack Lemon is just doing the most over-the-top, wonderful comedic performance. And she's really in the center of both of those things, playing them off of each other. And But she was very unhappy for a lot of the film. She was not comfortable doing comedy. She really felt drama was her sweet spot. It's amazing because it really doesn't show in the film. Well, and also behind the scenes, Blake Edwards found out that Natalie was getting paid almost nothing compared to himself because of the Warner Brothers deal that she was stuck in. And Blake Edwards and Jack Lemmon actually ended up giving over a percentage of their profits to her to try and help make up for that pay disparity. She is quite good at comedy. And this is you know, like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice that she ends up doing in 1969 is a very, very funny movie. It is a very subtle movie. This is like the most opposite you can get from that. Just like entirely. The movie is so ridiculous. And I mean that in the best possible way, but everything is so over the top. She's still the one, like Maureen said, that really grounds everything and keeps the film into, you know, some sort of realm of Reality. It's the opposite of the subtlety, but it's purposeful. It's meant to be sort of sending up Laurel and Hardy and Max Sennett and a lot of silent comedy style films of that era. So it's really leaning into the slapstick and that's the style of humor that it is, which is what made her so uncomfortable because that was something she'd never done before. And as long as you bring that up, I'm wondering because Blake Edwards certainly has an affinity for the stars of the past, especially the comedy stars of the past, as you guys pointed out, he dedicated the film to Laurel and Hardy. Do you think in the 1960s when the film came out that that worked against him at all and maybe it is more in his favor today? Yeah, I think so. I don't think audiences were really looking for that. It's interesting, right? Because Pink Panther, I feel, is very much a similar vein of humor where it's kind of over the top and really a lot of physical comedy and slapstick. But I think this goes a step further and it's homage where maybe audiences in the 60s just didn't quite get it. Yeah, I was also going to say Pink Panther and A Shot in the Dark, they're so great because they have that over the top sensibility, but it's done in such a tight-knit way. Like Peter Sellers is not over the top. It's like what happens to him is over the top. And then you still have very suave David Niven keeping things cool and calm and like George Sanders in A Shot in the Dark. And it's all this very contained slapstick 
and it's really the great race just kind of lets loose. It's like the great race is almost a thesis on comedy and film comedy and like all the different types of film comedies that you can have and all the different types of jokes, slapstick, not farce, everything is in there and paying homage to things. And I, I don't know how many people in the sixties would have necessarily made all those connections. And then once they came out on DVD and you can get them in your home, it's so much easier to watch these things and pick up on that. Whereas back then you would have just, you know, maybe seen it once or you could have seen it more times, but you'd really have to remember everything that came before that. Yeah. I was going to just say that, Oriana, there's no home video. So it's not like people can really build up a familiarity with these things that Edwards is paying homage to. So unless they were alive in that era and they're a lot older and going to the theater or they somehow saw it at a revival house or it came back to theaters or something like that and they happened to catch it once or twice, it's highly likely a lot of the audience in the 60s wouldn't have even seen uh, much of the things that Edwards is paying homage to. So you can understand why nowadays where access is so much greater that people would respond to it better. It definitely is a longer film and longer than most Blake Edwards films as well. And, you know, this is during the time of road showing and you get these special programs and that's pretty much what longer movies were for. And I feel like this is such a different type of film than that. So I could also see people having maybe gone in expecting one thing and kind of gotten something else as well. But, you know, so many directors, you know, people like Frank Capra, the way he would do comedy is if it took Cary Grant 10 seconds to cross the room, he had to get there in five seconds. And so I think whenever comedies honestly get over two hours, you teeter into, you know, territory where people could be thinking something's too long or you're thinking too much about the jokes or you always just hit different waters when it's a longer film. And one of the things that goes on the longest in that film is the pie scene. <laughs> and yet you guys both seem to think that was uh, pretty hilarious. That's a staple of old time comedy, the pie in the face. And I, I, again, if people will listen to your episode, they'll realize that this was not a fun thing to film. Do you think it came across in the final product? No, not at 100%. all. 100%. <laughs> oh, I meant the fun. I'm sorry. I meant the fun came across 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The fact that it was difficult is not in the final version at all. It's one of those things in a movie where it's like food fights always look more fun on screen than they are in real life because you don't have to deal with the gross factor that you do in reality. And it's just the way Edwards stages it where he has Tony Curtis in all white. And so you have this anticipation of, oh my God, he's going to get covered in these very colorful pies and it's going to ruin his outfit. And the way it keeps subverting that expectation and he keeps being missed really amps up the comedy of, yes, the pie fight is funny in itself. It's good physical comedy, but then he adds in that extra factor that really, really makes you laugh. And it's interesting because I agree with Oriana. It is overlong. The movie could probably be about 20 minutes to 30 minutes shorter than it is. And I think that's maybe why it doesn't get held in the same esteem as something like the Pink Panther films, because it does have a tendency to 
make a joke and then drag out the joke until it dies. But I think the pie fight sequence is something that doesn't do that. Like it's the perfect amount of time and it just gets funnier and funnier as it goes on. Well, and you keep thinking, you know, he's topped the joke and then it just keeps going. And it's also, it's great when Natalie gets thrown into the pie fight because the whole movie, she is so gorgeous in this film. She is so glamorous. She has these amazing costumes. She gets ditched in the middle of the desert, has like a Western themed outfit in her tiny suitcase and has her hair and makeup all completely done. She is ready for every situation and city they go into. She is so sophisticated. And so watch it. It's like, I remember the first time I saw this almost thinking like, she's not really going to get hit like her makeup, the hair, everything. And she gets so much pie thrown at her. And it's so funny that it's, it's no one is saved from the pie fight. (laughs) And Oriana, I know that you saw the film in a theater. I want to ask you about the difference between seeing it in the theater and seeing it on, say, a DVD at home, especially I'm thinking about the sing-along portion. It's, it's got to be an entirely different experience, yes? Every time Jack Lemon laughs as the prince, I could not stop laughing. And you could hear that happening throughout the entire theater. Like he would just make his little laugh and people would be chuckling for five minutes because it's so absurd and so funny and it never stops. And you have, that's like the great thing about the movie. There are all these little gems and these tiny moments that are so ridiculous and so absurd and not typical of the time. A lot of it honestly reminds me of the TV show Arrested Development that, you know, like they were clearly influenced by things like this. And there were just so many things that, you know, you'd think were funny, or then you'd hear someone else laugh and you'd go like, oh yeah, that joke is really funny. And it just put everyone in such a good mood because everyone was enjoying the movie so much. And when we got to the sing-along, everyone started laughing for like five, 10 seconds. And then the whole audience just started singing along with the movie. And it was kind of amazing. That's also something that really just happens a lot at that theater. People are so game for whatever the movie brings you whenever something like that happens. But it was pretty perfect. And I remember we got out of the movie. We were like, oh, that was almost like three hours. That didn't feel like three hours at all. That just sped by. And then when we watched it for the our episode, I was like, oh, okay, you know what? Without a whole audience of people laughing and laughing at things I might not have thought were funny, it really does feel... you. Feel the time a little bit more. It's very different. Yeah, I'm really jealous of your experience, Oriana, because I have only seen it watching at home on the couch basically by myself. And so I definitely thought it was funny and there were moments that made me laugh a lot. But I think you had such a different viewing experience with the comedy than I did uh, by virtue of having that audience. And you both pointed out that back then you saw it in the theater or you didn't see it. Now many or most films are viewed at home. Is that shared experience something we've lost? I actually feel like from the research we did on this film that it's risen in estimation over the years. So it wasn't particularly well received or a box office hit when it came out. And in fact, it was a bit of a box office disappointment considering the talent involved. Over the years, it's sort of been reevaluated and people have fallen in love with it more. So I think by and large, what you're saying is true that yes, people are watching a lot more at home now. They might rewatch something, but they'll still be in a lot more isolated environment. But then at the same time, something like this that functions better with an audience has seemed to grow in estimation over 
that amount of time. Well, and I was going to say another, you know, oddly enough, another Blake Edwards film. I saw the Pink Panther for the first time at this weekly movie night I have with some friends and none of us had seen it and we watched it and we were all like, I don't know if I would have had this like spin off into a whole series, but like that was okay. And then three or four years later, the American Cinematheque was showing the Pink Panther. They actually paired it with Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice and Robert Wagner was there for a Q&A and he was just talking about how delightful it was to work on the film and working with Blake Edwards. But then seeing that movie with an audience, I suddenly, it just completely opened me up to the movie in such a different way. And it's one of my favorite movies now. It is so unbelievably funny. Like there is not a wasted shot or second in that movie. The entire thing is hysterical. And maybe if I'd watched it, you know, multiple times at home, I eventually would have found it funnier and funnier. But after seeing that one on the big screen too, again, as movies were intended and how people used to see them all the time, it's always going to make a difference. What's interesting is what Maureen was saying, where cult status can come from things playing in revival houses a lot or them being more readily available so people can see them more than they play at a revival house and then they get a really great response so then it keeps playing and it builds back up so it's like they have this interesting symbiotic relationship and you know something else as much as we might try to put ourselves in that mindset we can't go back to the 1960s and i mentioned that both Natalie Wood and Blake Edwards were really, they were at their peaks at that point. Uh, You know, Blake Edwards had another peak, and I'll I'll get to that. But then kind of a a series of missteps, both with uh, Natalie Wood's next few films and Blake Edwards' next few films. I wonder if you think there was something going on at that time in the 1960s where they were just maybe a step behind the times? Yeah, I I definitely think that's part of it. For Natalie, it's also changing priorities in her life. Not very many years after this, that she takes a four-year break and focuses on getting married and having children and isn't really all that interested in making films. So that's a big part of why she kind of disappears in the late 60s. But I think for both of them, they're part of this classic Hollywood system or early 60s filmmaking that has a very specific tone and lightheartedness. And by the time you get to the late 60s with the counterculture and the Vietnam War and anti-war protest, culture and cinema are changing so radically that they both feel like they're of a different era. And at least for Natalie, it's going to take something like Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice to make audiences feel like she's joined that era or become a part of it or caught up with where the culture is at. Because everything she'd made prior to that point wasn't really there. Um, We mentioned in our episode that she actually was offered Bonnie in Bonnie and Clyde. Warren Beatty wanted her to play that part before they cast Faye Dunaway. And it's really interesting to think like how much sooner her career would have changed or what would have happened because that movie is such a linchpin in terms of being a symbol of how much culture and cinema is changing in 67. And then she, you know, comes out with Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, and that really is one of the defining sex comedies of the 1960s and one of the best comedies of the 1960s in general. She starts off 1960s like an okay year for her, and then she has Splendor in the Grass and has an Oscar nomination. And then she gets a second nomination in 1963 for Love with a Proper Stranger. And then, you know, something like this property is condemned as 
slowly people really do like that movie and I think the appreciation for it's growing it didn't do crazy well at the time it came out but it's interesting because you have something like Sex and the Single Girl and then Penelope which are definitely 60s sex comedies they're just you know Sex and the Single Girl isn't holding up as well and Penelope's just kind of a bizarre movie where the casting is really the problem but those just culminate into Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice and she just really begins and ends the 60s with a with a bang. I think what's so great about both of them is you have Natalie, you know, we watch her grow up on screen. She does every other genre, um, including period films, like hits the whole gamut. And she's making movies from the 1940s through the early 1980s. That's, a, that's huge. And she really blends in well to each decade. She never feels like she doesn't belong in that decade or that type of film. She never feels like, oh, that's this girl who was in a bunch of movies in the 50s and she's still hanging on in the 70s and 80s. That's absolutely not what happens to her. And that's also something that you can say about Blake Edwards, that he really has a wide array of genres under his belt and also didn't feel like he wasn't keeping up with the times. It's almost like some of the faults you can find with some of his times is because that was probably something that was really popular in like 1968, but you know, isn't as much now or wasn't as much in the seventies, but he was someone who you watch breakfast at Tiffany's and it feels like a young and fresh movie. And I think that's something great about both of them. They really aged and blended well into all the decades and genres that they worked in. I mentioned that Blake Edwards, after some missteps of his own after the great race, had this rebound going back to the Pink Panther films, which were really his meal ticket going forward from the mid-1970s, and uh, I suppose allowed him to do 10 in 1979, SOB in 1981, and Victor Victoria in 1982. Any particular thoughts from either of you on those films? It's really interesting because, you know, after he does The Great Race, you know, he has two films and then he does The Party and then he goes into Darling Lily. And even a movie like The Carrie Treatment, it's he's very much experimenting, again, with different types of comedy and different genres. You know, Darling Lily is this very kind of epic, romantic, musical, melodrama, you know, retelling of Mata Hari. And then you have The Carrie Treatment, which is kind of like a paranoid 70s film, which is really, really interesting. And then he gets back into, like you said, the Pink Panther films, and then 10 in a way equivalent to a Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, but for the 1970s. And what's interesting is, you know, 10 SOB and Victor Victoria all star Julie Andrews and 10 and SOB. I, I wouldn't say she's necessarily playing against type, but in SOB, she for sure is. Cause that's the whole point of her character. But it's interesting that those are the films that bring him back and they're all with her. And again, it comes so much of it comes down to casting and the types of stories he's telling. And I feel like he kind of gets back into his roots a little bit with those films. And that's probably why they were so successful. Yeah, of those, the only one I've seen is Victor Victoria. But honestly, if you only made one great film in your entire career, it could be Victor Victoria. What a wonderful musical piece of filmmaking. It's an extraordinary performance from Julie Andrews. James Garner is so much fun in it. So is Leslie Ann Warren. 
everything in that movie is firing in all cylinders. And so I'm really happy that that's a part of basically his renaissance as a filmmaker and his, his second peak, because it is such a great product. And I think in a lot of ways coalesces so many of the things he's great at this sort of subversion of gender roles that he plays with in a lot of his films or just subversion of gender in general. It's got that mix of comedy and drama and romance that he can both play on the really slapsticky end of the spectrum with physical comedy and do really subtle emotional stuff with. And it has both ends of that spectrum. I think it's just a great example of all the things he is good at as a director. Well, and he even has, you know, there's that inspector who keeps getting injured, who's in a completely different movie than everyone else. And nothing is funnier than when he walks in and his stool is broken and he falls over. Like that type of comedy, it's so great because this is another one that has so many different types of comedy rolled into one. And, you know, Leslie and Warren had said that working on Victor Victoria was such an incredible experience. They were filming in the UK and they basically filmed until like three or four every day. And then they stopped and they all went to dinner. And then they, you know, if your family was with you, you'd go spend time with your family because Blake Edwards felt like you couldn't be funny all day, every day. It had its limit. And if he pushed too hard, it wasn't going to be funny. So filming went over because of that, but everyone loved working on it and working with him. And he even realized how amazing Leslie Ann Warren was. She apparently, her character was supposed to have be a, like a brunette with pigtails. And then she had the idea of making her look like Jean Harlow and then eating the chocolate candy uh, like she does in Dinner at Eight. It's just these amazing references. And Blake, realized, watching the dailies, realized how funny she was. And then he asked her, he was like, you used to sing and dance, right? And she said, yes. And he said, can you still do that? And she said, yeah. So then he flew Henry Mancini and the um, songwriter out. And that's when they wrote Chicago, Illinois. They wrote that during filming because she was such an incredible talent. And I think that's the other thing. It's it's like you learn stories about that and you think, I can't believe like that's one of the funniest numbers that wasn't there from the beginning. But during filming, they found a way to seamlessly put that all together. And it kind of makes sense when you think about all the different types of comedy that are in one movie and it feels so eclectic and things feel so improvised, but they're probably not. He was just so insanely talented in that realm. Tell us about... Hollywoodography. Tell us about the concept and how you decided to do it and how you decided that you wanted to do all the films of Natalie Wood for your first season. Both Ariana and I are completists. Like we love to make lists and finish things from start to finish, particularly movie viewing. And so for several years, we'd been saying like, wouldn't it be so cool if we did a podcast where we watched an entire star's filmography from start to finish. And we've talked about it for a while, uh, but we both were really busy trying to coordinate schedules. And then when the pandemic happened, we were like, okay, great. This is the perfect time to start doing this and make this a part of our lives because we don't have anything else to do. Um, so that's that's kind of where it started. It's been an idea we had for a long time. We'd like to get that full picture of something and, and feel like we saw something from beginning to end. But I also think you get such a different picture of a star doing that and watching their films chronologically and seeing every single one and understanding the ebbs and flows of their career as opposed to just seeing the greatest hits or seeing the greatest hits and then maybe one flop or something. It really gives you such different insight into how they were thinking, how audiences were thinking about them. And that was 
a concept that we had going in, but I think we've found it borne out in a greater degree than we even expected, really. Yeah, I really agree. I want to say I had seen three-fourths of her movies before we started this. And TCM had a, she was the star of the month, I don't know, 10 years ago. And I watched pretty much everything that aired. And then I hadn't seen a lot of it since then. But watching her grow up on screen, you totally get why doing Splendor in the Grass would have been such a big deal. Why Rebel Without a Cause, you know, really, I'd seen Rebel Without a Cause quite a few times. I, It's never been one of my favorites, but watching it through a Natalie lens and seeing you totally would have seen why she blew up with this film after everything she'd been doing before in so many ways. And then in the 60s, you, you're really just watching her career do a real steady climb, and you totally get why audiences would have loved her and why the film she was nominated for, she ended up getting nominated for. It's, like, it's interesting because I feel like this is maybe the best way at least I've ever really gotten into the mindset of what it really would have been like to watch these films at the time you're getting the cultural zeitgeist from all her films and you're really seeing you know all these like really feminist roles that she was interested in and you see a difference where you know something like sex and the single girl that the studio put her in which was better than some of the other films they had put her in but there's a huge difference between that and then bob and carol and ted and alice which was one she had chosen and it really puts you into that perspective of what it would have been like and why you know, you really get why people loved her. Almost everyone knows who she is. Film people know who she is, but a lot of, you know, non-people, non-film, non-people, a lot of non-film people also know, they recognize that name. They've seen West Side Story. They have seen Rebel Without a Cause. She's in such seminal texts for film, but also she's just someone that no one dislikes. You don't really talk to anyone who's like, "Uh, I'm just not a Natalie Wood fan. That's literally something that no one says. She was such an incredible actress. She was a really good person. And I really feel like that reputation that she just had in life and her work ethic somehow has transpired. And so people just know about her. There's also two other reasons, which is one, she is really fairly unique. I mean, there's a couple other stars that fit this definition in that she started working as a child star. And so she worked from the mid-40s all the way through to the early 80s, and we watched her grow up on screen. And that's really pretty rare that we see someone's career span all of that. And by virtue of doing that, she spans so many different decades of cinema, from starting within really the heart of the studio system to then the dissolution of the studio system and actors gaining more power and the evolution of new Hollywood and a really radically different way of filmmaking. So we liked that it would give us the opportunity to touch on all of those things and look at cinema as it was changing over those decades. And then finally, another reason we chose her is that everyone knows her because of her tragic death. And just even the films that we had seen before we started this or that we were fans of, we were like, that's such a shame because she's such an incredible actress. And it's really awful that this terrible thing that happened to her has overshadowed her talent and has become the first thing that people think of when they think of her. And so that was another part of why we chose her is we wanted to sort of excavate that and look at her outside of the context of that and take her out of the shadow of that a little bit. I was just going to say, when I was 22, I think, I'd started reading a biography on her. Actually, it's one of the ones we were reading for the show as well. But I started the book and it just 
cast her whole life through the lens of her death. And it really bothered me at the time. And I didn't even, I put the book down because I was just like, I don't understand why we can't celebrate her career and why we can't celebrate all these amazing things she did completely independent from that. Everyone needed to pay their dues to her and just really appreciate all the wonderful things she did and celebrate her career that she really worked hard to craft and really, really worked hard on her entire life. It's another wonderful similarity between what you're doing and what we're trying to do with Where Have You Gone? Because even some of our better known subjects, there are aspects of their career that aren't as well known and we're trying to get them more attention. And so, again, I would encourage anybody listening to listen to Hollywoodography and especially episode 30 about the great race. And Maureen and Oriana, continued success with Hollywoodography, and thank you so much for joining me to talk about Blake Edwards. Our pleasure. Yes, thank you so much for having us. Do you have an idea for an episode of Where Have You Gone? A person, place, or thing gone but not forgotten, or forgotten but not gone, with a connection to the mid-20th century? If you do, let us know. Connect with us on Facebook at Where Have You Gone Podcast or on Twitter at WHYG Podcast. And now, back to the show. Other than a film version of Peter Gunn, simply titled Gunn in 1967, Blake Edwards made five consecutive comedies, starting with The Pink Panther and A Shot in the Dark. Between those two stories featuring Peter Sellers as Inspector Clouseau, and the next, The Return of the Pink Panther in 1975, Edwards made eight varied films. They had one thing in common. They were not blockbusters at the box office, and Edwards went from rising star to falling star. With the perspective of time... Perhaps it's possible to assess those films without monetary concern. That's what Sam Wasson did in his book, A Splurge in the Kisser, The Movies of Blake Edwards. The movies I'm talking about in this period are The Great Race, What Did You Do in the War, Daddy, Gun, The Party, Darling Lily, Wild Rovers, The Carey Treatment, and The Tamarind Seed. The Great Race came out in 1965. The success Edwards had had leading up to that film gave him the ability to make a big, uh, in this case, 150-minute tribute to slapstick comedy. What Did You Do in the War Daddy from 1966 was uh, war satire in the vein of M.A.S.H. and Kelly's Heroes. It certainly does not hit on all cylinders, but it's an interesting part of the Edwards body of work. Gun from 1967, at least as far as the Balton Guide is concerned, didn't hit on too many cylinders at all. In 1968, Edwards reteamed with Peter Sellers for the party. And you may get mixed reactions to the party, depending on who watches it and when they watch it. It's a personal favorite of mine. It's hilariously funny throughout most of the film. It probably does not hold up 
entirely from start to finish, but it has lots of great moments in it. It's a film of its time, 1968, and when you need a good laugh, I suggest watching The Party, and hopefully it will do the trick for you. Darling Lily from 1970 was Blake Edwards' first film with his new wife, his second wife, Julie Andrews. It runs 136 minutes. In fact, it had a roadshow running length of 143 minutes. It did not do well, but again, with the passage of time and perhaps it wasn't what people were expecting from Blake Edwards after films like The Great Race and The Party, you certainly have the chance to judge for yourself. In 1971... Edwards went in a completely different direction with a film called Wild Rovers. 109 minutes, reportedly Wild Rovers and Edwards' next film, The Carey Treatment, were both butchered in post-production. According to the 2014 Malton Guide, Wild Rovers was cut down to 109 minutes, but restored to its original 136-minute version for a 2011 DVD release. It has been recently released on Blu-ray, and the Malton Guide gives it the best rating of any of the films of Blake Edwards of this time period, three and a half stars. As I mentioned, The Carey Treatment from 1972, it's based on the novel A Case of Need by Michael Crichton. It's a mystery, as is The Tamarind Seed from 1974, Edwards' second film with Julie Andrews. After The Tamron Seed, Edwards returned to a proven winner, reteaming with Peter Sellers as Inspector Clouseau, and they hit the jackpot with three successive Panther films in four years. The Return of the Pink Panther, The Pink Panther Strikes Again, and Revenge of the Pink Panther. The Pink Panther trilogy of 1975 to 1978 revived Edwards' bankability. It allowed him to make another series of 11 films from 1979 to 1993, excluding another three Panther films that, like the films of 1965 to 1974, range in quality but continue to address themes important to the director. And I will take a brief look at some of those films when Where Have You Gone, Blake Edwards concludes. Peter Sellers died in 1980. That did not prevent three more Panther films in 1982, 1983, and 1993. These three reflect some of the overall body of the films of Blake Edwards, but also reflect the commercial nature of Hollywood by continuing to milk the franchise, perhaps excessively. The film 10 may be the best-known work of Blake Edwards, The follow-up, S.O.B., gave Edwards a chance to hit back at Hollywood, and its follow-up, Victor Victoria, was a hit across the board. Then came The Man Who Loved Women, Mickey and Maud, A Fine Mess, That's Life, Blind Date, Sunset, 
Skin Deep and Switch from 1983 to 1991. According to the Malton Guide, the best of these is That's Life from 1986, something of an autobiographical film starring Julie Andrews and Jack Lemmon. Is the glass half empty or half full? You may look at the filmography of Blake Edwards and see more misses than hits, or you may see a career filled with memorable films and an overall body of work that places him among the great film auteurs like Alfred Hitchcock, John Ford, Stanley Kubrick, and Jerry Lewis. You may ignore his film work and enjoy the radio episodes of Richard Diamond and the television episodes of Peter Gunn and Mr. Lucky. You might focus on his collaborations with his wife, Julie Andrews. If you focus on the Pink Panther movies, I suggest you watch them chronologically. The second film, A Shot in the Dark, is much different from The Pink Panther. The third film, The Return of the Pink Panther, is much different from the other two. The rest are a mixed bag, and you might love, like, or hate any one of them. I have barely spoken about the films directed by Blake Edwards before Breakfast at Tiffany's. They are Bringing Your Smile Along, He Laughed Last, Mr. Corey, This Happy Feeling, The Perfect Furlough, Operation Petticoat, and High Time, seven films. Tony Curtis was in three of them, leading the cast of Mr. Corey and The Perfect Furlough, and second build to Cary Grant in Operation Petticoat. Any further discussion of those films must wait for another time. For now, I hope our thoughts about Blake Edwards have given you more ways to enjoy his work beyond the Pink Panther films and his other greatest hits. Thanks again to Maureen Lee Lenker and Oriana Nudo, the co-hosts of Hollywoodography, for joining us and adding their insights. Be sure to check out the Hollywoodography podcast featuring the entire filmography of Natalie Wood. I'm Morris Eckhaus, host of Where Have You Gone? Our music was composed and performed by Harry Richardson. Our logo was designed by Jeff Santala. Thanks to Alan Feniger, Bruce Bonner, Mark Presser, Greg Brown, and Carl Mastercola. The Where Have You Gone podcast is produced by Alan Eckhaus. Where Have You Gone is a production of The Morwin Company.